the pandemic is not over. What we are seeing is a rapid emergence of the Omicron variant. Omicron surge, the COVID positivity rate doubles. This is unprecedented. People who previously had COVID are getting COVID again. Long lines for tests. I was surprised. I was like, I've been here for almost two hours. Ahead of the holidays. My family is vaccinated, but I still feel like we need to still need to be cautious. America's education system is under attack right now. Trembling TikTok threats and generous teacher contracts. When they get back, we'll be able to bring it to a vote. Broward teachers got a real raise. No taxpayer dollars should be used to teach our kids to hate our country or to hate each other. And the governor gets woke. We want treat people treated equally. Uh, we don't want ideology. And proposes a law to let parents sue over teaching critical race theory. Critical race theory is not taught across the city. It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. Glenna has the morning off. We have got a lot of ground to cover this morning, including a discussion of critical race theory, but we are going to begin with the big story of the week, the surge in the Omicron variant. Florida reported more than 8,700 cases of COVID-19 yesterday. That is a huge increase from just two weeks ago. And researchers at the University of Florida are projecting that by the time Omicron hits its apex in January, there's going to be 40,000 cases a day in the state. We are looking at the fourth wave of COVID-19 and an incredibly infectious variety of uh, coronavirus, Omicron, although it seems to be slightly less vital. So let's turn to an acknowledged expert on coronavirus and all things medical, our good friend here, Dr. Eileen Marty of the FIU Medical School. Dr. Marty, good morning. Good morning, Michael. Uh, so the surge we are seeing and the model projected by the University of Florida of this huge increase by say mid-January, uh, how concerned are you? I'm extremely concerned by this. And um, what we're seeing around the world is uh, almost a logarithmic climb in cases where Omicron takes hold. Uh, it's doubling time is uh, every two to four days. Uh, compare that to Delta, which was doubling time took about a week, a week and a half. Um, this is this is absolutely uh, startling, and it's uh, it's able to spread very well with the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. Um, right. And this is this is something that didn't evolve in one second, Michael. This this took time to get to where it is, based on all the mutations that it has. Right. Well, we have seen that uh, in the UK, they are reporting, I saw a report yesterday, that the cases there are doubling, nearly doubling every two days. I mean, this is something that we did not see with Delta, did we? Correct. Correct. With Delta, it, it, it took more than a week and a half for to see a doubling, uh, even when at its worst. So, um, and, and of course, there's a variety of reasons, molecular reasons, why why this is happening. What the the 15 amino acid changes from insertions, deletions, and mutations on the spike, as well as uh, the other uh, um, mutations, the other 20 mutations that are not on the spike that are also helping this virus uh, propagate more rapidly within the cells, 
So it enters our cells with greater ease and it propagates with greater ease. And um, the problem with, with this SARS-CoV-2 virus is not, uh, it's not like influenza that uh, has a limited range of hosts, right? So influenza can affect water birds, humans, pigs, a few strains can affect uh, dogs or horses. And that's about, and that's about it for influenza. Whereas this thing, this SARS-CoV-2 has hundreds and hundreds, more than 500 different species in which it can replicate. Hmm. And because of that, it's the type of virus, Michael, that has no evolutionary pressure to become milder because it has so many hosts, it doesn't care about any one particular host. Wow. Any host is good enough for it, for it to propagate, and that's all it needs to do. Well, frankly, I find that kind of frightening, or at least it causes anxiety. Uh, Dr. Marty, uh, we have seen, been reporting this morning, other media that uh, at testing stations around South Florida, this morning particularly, out at Tropical Park, tens of thousands of people are going out to try to find out uh, their status, if they are positive or not. Uh, would you not hope that while they find out if they're positive, that anybody who isn't vaccinated also stop and get a, a, a inoculated? We are so blessed in the United States to have uh, two of the best vaccines available in the world safe and efficacious. The Moderna and the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine uh, do a phenomenal job of protecting us uh, from severe disease, especially if you get that booster. Uh, that booster makes a huge difference because it really isn't so much a booster as the third shot we all needed. Um, and, and I would advocate anyone who got the J&J &J, immediately do not pass go, uh, go and get a, a messenger RNA as a, as a next shot so that they can get the right kind of protection uh, and, and as high a protection as they possibly can get. Remember, there's two things. Remember, we, we just said that the SARS-CoV-2 has no evolutionary pressure to become milder, and, and that's true. But once we have upwards of 90% of the human population vaccinated, then the rate at which it causes people to end up in the hospital becomes all that much smaller. And so that's another reason that yes, even though vaccinated people can spread it to others, they themselves have a large amount of protection keeping them out of being hospitalized uh, or dying uh, for the most part. And so we need to get everybody up to those levels so that we can all uh, breathe a sigh of relief and, and start to really get past this. Right. Dr. Marty, I see that uh, in Florida, about 63% of all people have received at least two shots, and but only 26% have received a booster. So um, the people who have, say, I got two uh, Pfizer vaccinations and I got a booster, but, you know, that's not a, a, a golden bullet. I mean, I, it, there's no guarantee with uh, Omicron, is there? No, and, and, and they're never, I mean, look, as we've said before, you get a vaccine, you don't have an invisible magic shield keeping the virus from getting in your body. Your virus, you can still breathe it in. Um, and, and that's why you also, also want to be mindful of where you are, right? So if you're in a congregate area, with, uh, that's, that's indoors and poorly ventilated, uh, get, put on that mask, keep a little distance because what you want is if that virus gets 
you get some of it in you, it's at right. such a low dose that it doesn't impact. And it might not even, if you're vaccinated and boosted, right. it probably won't even be able to actually establish itself. Yeah. So you want to uh, expose yourself to as little virus as possible and be as protected as possible um, so that so that you don't get ill and so that the people you love don't get ill. And I think yeah. it's, it's, it's a responsible thing for all of us as citizens to do right now is to be mindful of what our infection can do to others as well. And that's another reason to mask up in congregate settings. Yeah, and, and that brings me to the final question and a really important one. Here we are about to celebrate Christmas. Families are going to be getting together. They will be eating together, you know, in a living room together inside. Is that a good idea? Should people reconsider how they get together this Christmas season? Well, certainly in South Florida, where we are blessed with phenomenal weather this time of year, have your have your gatherings outdoors. It's so much safer for everyone and everyone can be more relaxed. Uh, that's the better thing to do. If you're going to do it indoors, test, test and test. Make sure that you're not uh, having somebody at the party that can be uh, leading to an outbreak in your household that might lead some members uh, in the hospital or yeah. worse. Yeah, great advice. Dr. Eileen Marty, always good speaking with you. Thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it. All my right, my, thank you. All right, Miami-Dade County is on the offensive against Omicron and Delta too. And leading the charge is Mayor Daniela Levine Cava, and we are going to speak with her after the break. Medical experts tell us uh, that Omicron now makes up more than 80% of COVID cases. In South Florida, over the last two weeks, the county has been among the most aggressive governments in fighting the coronavirus, and they have stepped up again under the leadership of Mayor Daniela Levine Cava. She joins us now via Zoom. Madam Mayor, good morning. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Always wonderful to be with you, Michael. Uh, uh, Mayor Levine Cava, we know on Thursday you had a news conference. We covered it at Local 10. All the media did. You said some really important things about your strategy moving forward to fight Omicron. Tell us what are some of the elements of your strategy? Yes, thanks, Michael. So as we see these numbers going up and Omicron uh, that is um, spreading like wildfire, uh, one and a half uh, to two times uh, you know, every day we are seeing these increases, we are telling people please continue to get your vaccines. That's number one. We're asking the hospitals to report daily. We had given them a little hiatus when the numbers were down, but now that positivity is up, we want that, uh, of course. We're going to be bringing the Pfizer shot as soon as it's available to us, uh, and we'll have that on, uh, on um, availability for those who test positive. And we're also offering the monoclonal treatment so uh, we're doing all of that and of course we're recommending just like dr marty did best to take your holiday celebrations outside to mask when you're around people you do not know to be protected uh, all of this is keeping our infection rate uh, as low as it possibly can be and keeping serious cases down too that's the most important thing right uh, during the last surge in the summer into the fall of delta 
you require that anybody going into a Miami-Dade County building wear a mask. You have not imposed that mask mandate again. Why not? So um, we're strongly advising masking. Uh, so we have signs around that encourage uh, on our premises. We are strongly advising it. I personally am wearing my mask um, around the office. Uh, and, and so I think that this is the wise thing for people to do. And we're continually reevaluating what we recommend in cons consultation with Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Peter Page. Yeah. Uh, we know, of course, Mayor, that, uh, that you and your husband, Robert, who is a physician, you both have been through COVID. You know firsthand what an awful experience this is. Thank the Lord you and he both uh, came out of it just fine. Uh, yes. But that, I think, doesn't that terrible experience inform what you say now and what you are doing to try to help people get through this? No question about it. And for example, we've also started back our homebound service for those who are homebound. We're also going to the senior facilities. So these are all measures that we're taking aggressively in Miami-Dade County that are not being replicated uh, throughout the state. So we are uh, consistent. We've not given up for a single day our efforts to get people vaccinated, to protect people, to um, make sure that uh, we can keep the infection spread down. Yeah. We're, we're also going into neighborhoods with mobile trucks oh, to underserved areas. So we're also opening up more test sites, more hours, uh, so that the, the long lines can be um, handled. We know that people around the holiday season especially are wanting to test. Again, as Dr. Marty said, it's a very good idea to test when um, when you're going to be exposed to anyone. So we are making sure that we have all the resources in place to help everybody right. uh, this holiday season and hopefully bring this, this right. uh, uptick down again. Uh, as we were saying with Dr. Marty, we have seen a huge outpouring of people at Tropical Park over the last couple of days. We know that's a 24 hour a day facility. I think they've been busy out there almost 24 hours a day doing testing, but Miami-Dade has other testing facilities, doesn't it? Yes, we have 20 sites and they're all listed at miamidade.gov slash vaccine. We're also looking at extending hours at other sites, uh, everything we can do to help people get the testing yeah. that they need. And I must say that we do have the best vaccination rate in the state. Uh, you gave some figures earlier, but that has to do with the overall population. For those that are eligible for the vaccine at certainly over 85%. And we're the best in Florida, one of the, the better in the country. And we want people to continue. The booster is critically important. Our booster rate is not what it should be. Right. We want people to come out for the booster and our vaccination uh, lines are short. There are no lines. Yeah. You know, uh, Mayor Levine, we, we know it's worrisome, the situation with hospitals, hospitals right now have not been inundated uh, with new patients, new COVID patients, but they are anticipating that. And here we've got, you know, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, everybody who has been so working so hard, many of them are kind of burned out. Now, if we go through a new surge of hospitalizations, uh, are they ready at Jackson, uh, ready at Baptist? I mean, what, what do you know about that? 
Yes. So uh, we monitor daily. We have the hospitals reporting in. I just got off the phone with Dr. Page and he's saying that people are coming to the hospital but not going into the intensive care unit at an alarming rate. So the fact that we have so many who are vaccinated, so many who've had COVID, it's definitely bringing the seriousness of the um, illness in, in, down so that we're not overwhelming the hospital system yet, but people still are getting sick. People are still unvaccinated getting sick and they are the ones that are going to be taking up those those critical beds in the hospital yeah, and, uh, and, risking, and risking death. So everyone must vaccinate, get the boosters all the way down to age five. You know, children should be getting this shot right. and doubled and double dose. That's the most important. Yeah. Uh, Mayor, what are the latest figures on percent of population? We are a community in Miami-Dade of roughly, what, two and a half million, maybe a, a little more. How many people have been vaccinated? What percentage? Just yeah, so CDC is reporting in the order of 87% of those eligible. I think it was a little higher than that. But, and, and it's in the 90s for the older population. So right. uh, we've done very well with the older population. And of course, we started with them and they were most at risk. But having said that, um, the, the children uh, are not coming in at the same rate. It's really important because they can spread the disease. Uh, just like anyone else and bring it to people who maybe are more vulnerable. So we need to take this vaccine for our loved ones, not only for ourselves, uh, and uh, especially with Omicron, that is so highly contagious and we're seeing um, multiples of the disease every every single day. So uh, again, we're, we're in the high 80s for the eligible population overall. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, Mayor Levine, Kava, please stay where you are. We have more things to talk about with you. We'll be right back with her in just a minute. We are glad you are with us this morning for a conversation with Mayor Daniela Levine, Kava. Uh, Madam Mayor, just one other kind of COVID-related question. I was really impressed this week that uh, a Department of Miami-Dade County government was doing wastewater analysis and was finding yeah. presence of Omicron uh, good going. I think that is, you know, uh, using science to its best uh, purposes. Thank you, Michael. Always science and data driven. Well, and they discovered, of course, that Omicron was in wastewater that they were uh, examining. Uh, Mayor Levine, let me, let me ask you about something else that's, uh, I think, on people's mind. The Miami-Dade County Grand Jury issued a report this week on the collapse, the tragic collapse of the Champlain Tower South. You were there every day for at least a month. The, one of the main recommendations is that there be a recertification of the structural integrity of these condo buildings, I guess other high-rise buildings, instead of every 40 years, more like 10 to 15 years. Do you support that? So, uh, Michael, we've been looking at these recommendations for several months and convening um, experts uh, from around the, the state, country, and nationally, and agree with the recommendations generally from the grand jury report, very happy for the report. I believe that the recommendation to move to a 30-year recertification process right. makes a lot of sense. 
and years. also that there's more transparency about any of the the investigations or reports that are happening throughout uh, the building's life cycle. So part of it is that that information doesn't always get to the decision makers, the uh, the board of the condominium association, and then also that it's made available to the public. So we need to have more frequent uh, certi certification. We need to have the expertise uh, from studies shared publicly, and we need to make sure that those associations are making uh, good decisions, not based on lack of funding right. to be able to make necessary repairs. And so last, um, yeah, I do me. want to emphasize that the process in place now is countywide, but it's implemented by each city. So the county is responsible for those outside of city boundaries and the cities do their own recertification. But hopefully any improvements that are made will be made across the board countywide. Right. Uh, and for that matter, in other counties as well. Right. Uh, last week on this program, State Senator Ana Maria Rodriguez uh, said she's going to introduce legislation in the upcoming session of the legislature, which is going to require HOA board members, condo board members, to go through some kind of a training course uh, in building repair and maintenance and to sort of get them up to speed about what they really should know, because right now there, there is no criteria for them. That sounds like a great idea. I, I support our, our senator and that idea. She knows the industry very, very well, uh, not only as a legislator, but in her uh, outside employment. And yeah. I think that uh, we do know that it's a very serious responsibility that these people hold, and we want to give them all the tools we can to do a good job. Right. Uh, Mayor Levine Cava, uh, let me ask you about a, a really troublesome news story that we only learned this week, and Doug Hanks at the Miami Herald broke it, so kudos to Doug. Uh, and that is the train station in downtown Miami that the Tri-Rail and Brightline are supposed to use and that I guess Brightline built cannot accommodate the uh, Tri-Rail trains because the platform is larger and they can't open the doors. And this is a $70 million project and $43 million is tax money. So uh, yes. number one, you were surprised to learn this, I'm sure. And number two, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah, so first of all, very, very upsetting news here. We're all waiting for the uh, components of our transit system to move forward. This was a critical piece of the puzzle, bringing tri-rail in to the downtown um, uh, Miami Central Station. So the dollars that the county, that the city, that the downtown development uh, agency, so many put in were given to Tri-Rail as the government, quasi-government entity, and then they contracted with uh, Brightline to do the work. Uh, definitely this problem was known uh, back in March and really very upsetting that it was not made public. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing that I want to underscore. Uh, I'm assured that this can be remedied. There are a couple of different ways it can be remedied. Um, the burden is on uh, those who did the work to fix it. Um, we need to make a decision and uh, move forward. So that's where I am with this. We, we definitely, uh, need to all be on the same page, move this forward, get it done, and make sure that this critical piece of our transportation 
infrastructure can go forward. All right, well, we'll, we'll be following that one closely. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, always a pleasure to speak with you. Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, everything. I wish you and your family. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Teachers in Florida got a $1,000 bonus this year from the state. Actually, the money was from the federal government. But what about salary hikes? Broward teachers just got a big salary hike this week, and we're going to talk to the president of the Broward Teachers Union when we come back. Florida teachers have been woefully underpaid for years, and then they started getting modest pay increases under Governor Bob Graham. We know he's been under the weather. We wish him well. In the last two years, they also got pay increases under Governor Ron DeSantis, but local school boards determined salaries, and late this week, the Broward School Board and the Broward Teachers Union announced they have reached an agreement on a new contract that calls for teacher salaries to go up significantly. So. Let's talk about it with the president of the Broward Teachers Union, Anna Fusco. Anna, good afternoon. Great to see you. Hey, good afternoon, Michael. Thank you for having me. All right. So these pay increases, I mean, the first item is a $2,000 one-time stipend for all PEP unit members. Explain what that means. What What, what is a... Uh, uh, the stipend for EP unit members? We have a couple different units in our uh, Broward Teachers Union, and the EPs are all of our, our educators, our teachers, our social workers, guidance counselors, uh, speech pathologists, you know, everybody that is hands-on instructional with the, with the students. So that's what that group is. Right. And then I see the teachers, according to the salary schedule, uh, highly effective teachers are going to get a one33 percent raise and teachers grandfathered in in the salary schedule get a one percent raise for effective teachers um uh, you know when the cost of living and inflation is going up by nearly six percent a one percent raise is welcome but you know it doesn't keep pace with inflation no it doesn't and you know this really all falls on our group in tallahassee you know they fund our public schools and they work really diligently to figure out ways to give the minimal amount of money towards our public school system and just tell the districts to figure it out with bare bones. You know, when you need to fill resources and you also need to sustain employees that are employed and also bring in, you know, new employees and then, the, you know, factor in the raises that are, you know, well-deserved and really yeah. needed when the district can only find a, a minimal 1% in their budget for all of our 14,000 educators in that unit is is quite disheartening. You know, we're not trying to blame the school district. We know that they've got minimal amount to work with. And we keep having this conversation year after year, you know, with our elected governor and our elected senators and representatives of why it has to be a fight to fund the very core of our nation, which is public schools. Yeah. Uh, also, I should mention here that uh, other uh, pay increases in Broward County and the school district include for a classroom assistant, they're going to be going from $11.51 an hour to $13 an hour, and teachers' assistants go from $13.37 to $15 an hour. So, you know, in fairness, everybody who is in the classroom in the educational process uh, is getting a little more money, and it's well-deserved. 
Right, and it is it is a little bit more money than any other group has done in the state. It's even though it seems minimal, you know, our district really worked hard with the Broward Teachers Union, you know, figuring out what they can do that's not going to you know bust the budget because they have to sustain these minimal these minimal raises yeah. throughout the years to come, and we never know what happens in session. You know, our ESPs work so hard, also hand on hand with our you know our most vulnerable children. You know whether it's changing diapers, feeding them, you know, hands on hands help and so forth. And, you know, moving them to these uh, wage adjustments, hourly rates has been something we've been working on for years. And, you know, it's a national campaign, you know, moving people to at least $15 an hour. So it's well-deserved. And, you know, the extra bonus of $1,500 and then the $1,000 bonus that our governor left out are, you know, groups that work so hard with our students, our district, you know, wanted to make sure that they were not forgotten. Yeah. Uh, we also should mention that uh, uh, teachers who are involved in bilingual support, the support staff, they also got a $500 supplement. So uh, I, I think it, it appears to me, and tell me what you think, that the Broward School Board is, is trying to move in the right direction, trying to fairly pay the men and women who do what you do and belong to your, your union. No, and I and I do believe that they are trying to do the best that they can with what they're dealt with. And it's, you know, it is, it's multiple conversations. Some, some are very, you know, hard conversations, but they are always willing to listen and they're trying to figure it out, again, what's in the budget, what's given from Tallahassee. Yeah. Uh, Anna, while we are speaking here, there's another big story involving yes. all public schools in South Florida over the last uh, week and a half or two, and that is this rash of social media threats to kill, to shoot up schools. I mean, we have seen, I think, at least seven or eight uh, kids uh, as young as 13 who have been arrested and charged with felonies. Uh, what is the cause for this rash of violent threats? I, you know, I can't answer what the cause of it is. I just know that it is extremely sad and disheartening. And it has put everybody on high alert from our students, our parents, our community, and our educators in the school system that they are seriously, legitimately afraid. And I know that our school district and our interim superintendent are working really hard to make extra parameters to keep people safe. And we've got a list of alert out there. We've got higher security out there. We've got our BSO and all of our municipality uh, officers that are working diligently with our school district and our interim superintendent. You know, our superintendent has, you know, made this announcement to TikTok that they need to do better. Our national presidents for our unions, they are also getting in conversation with them that they need to do better. But our parents, that is where it starts at home. Our parents need to have these hard conversations with yeah. their children and make it known that they should not become one of those statistics that are going to have their lives basically ruined by being arrested with a felony, whether they want to say it's a joke or that they may act out on it. If there is some really social, emotional, mental situations going on, the parents need to know that there are so many outlets out there, including the Broward County Public Schools, that are there to help. And let's get help before there's a, you know, a, a yeah. conversation that I could have done more. Yeah, before they act on it. It's just right. A, we can't. Yeah. We don't want them to act. We, yeah. we are, you know, really nervous about this and scared and our teachers and our yeah. want to keep our students safe. And again, they're front line and they won't hesitate to do whatever it needs to keep them safe. We understand. Anna Fisco, always good speaking with you. Thank you, Michael. Good going on the new contract. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. All right. We have heard a lot lately about critical race theory, and we are going to talk to a historian who sees the subject quite differently than Governor Ron DeSantis. We're going to speak with Dr. Marvin Dunn in just a minute. I'm sure you have heard the phrase critical race theory and heard the heated debate over it, maybe even taken part in that debate. Well, this morning, we want a cooler discussion of critical race theory with Dr. Marvin Dunn. He is the retired chairman of the psychology department at FIU and a writer of note. He, in fact, is the author of this fine book, A History of Florida Through Black Eyes. He recently published an op-ed in the Miami Herald that said critical race theory should be taught in schools, quote, because the victims deserve at least that much respect and because the truth must be taught whoever it makes feel uncomfortable. Marvin Dunn, great to have you on the program. How are you, my friend? I'm very well. I hope you're the same, Michael. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, I'm delighted to have you, and uh, I appreciate and respect uh, your work in this fine book and your, your op-ed. So uh, give me your basis, uh, basic thesis, uh, Marvin. Uh, why should critical race theory be taught, especially if, as the governor says, that amounts to state-sponsored racism? Well, well, it should be taught because it's true. Uh, critical race theory is based on the, the idea that American institutions were built upon racism. And that's true. Even though it may make some people feel uncomfortable, including Levin DeSantis, DeSantis, it's true. Now, does that mean that people today should feel guilty because of that? Certainly not. But uh, we have to first recognize that our country could not have evolved as it did without race being a major factor in many of the institutions that we, that, that we evolved, that we developed. Uh, the government is running for president. And uh, everything that comes out of his mouth should be understood from that context. Somehow, the Republicans, every time we run, come around to a national election, manage to play the race card. Ever since the Willie Horton uh, incident, managed to interject race into particularly presidential uh, elections. And that's what's happening. They, uh, DeSantis saw the uh, results in Virginia, where the race card, the critical race theory card, was played by folks, a lot of them, enough of them got scared, frightened, uh, and it worked. And I think between now and, the, and the, the, through the 22 elections, we're going to see Republicans playing this card, the critical race card, again and again and again, uh, for the purpose of frightening and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and stampeding white people into, into their corner. Okay. Listen, um, I can't think of a single institution, Michael, uh, in our country uh, that does not have a legacy of racism. Um, so we need to teach uh, these things but not to make white children feel guilty. Why should, the guilt is not a part of it. We need to teach the facts of history as they happen without making anybody feel bad. I don't know how you would teach, for example, uh, the Holocaust but without people listening to, the, to that story feeling badly or about slavery. You can't, or about the, the extension of the American in Indians almost. Yeah. These things are, are difficult topics to talk about. People may feel badly about it, but that's no reason uh, not to teach not these to things. Teach it, yeah, not to put it uh, before kids. And you exactly. said in your op-ed piece 
don't think that kids can't handle the truth. I mean, part of what the governor and others are saying is, oh, we can't tell them about these ugly incidents in our past, factual as they are, because they're going to be disturbed. They're going to be sad. They're going to be depressed. Has the governor ever looked at TikTok? Has, <laughs> have, you know, the things that kids have access to, the, the information kids today have access to, there's no limiting what kids can now learn. Yeah. This is not uh, going to injure our students. It's going to enhance their ability to relate to each other. Yeah, well, you're you speaking as a, a clinical psychologist as well. Uh, Marvin, uh, if I may, and by the way, just people know, uh, I've only known you for 35 years, and that's why we're using first names here. Um, we invite Governor DeSantis every week to be on this program, and he always finds a reason not to do it. But on Thursday, he gave this news conference where he announced the the woke bill, Stop Woke, which will allow parents to, in fact, sue a school, maybe a teacher, if they believe their child has been taught critical race theory. We want to give the, the governor a chance to be heard. So here's part of what he said on Thursday. Take a listen. This has become a cottage industry, the CRT. There's people making huge amounts of money. They basically will get tens of thousands of dollars to go in and do a training, um, sometimes at schools, sometimes at businesses, you know, basically saying like, okay, pay me $50,000 so I can teach your employees how racist capitalism is or something like that. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, you're certainly charging a king's ransom to do that. You don't, you don't, you don't complain about capitalism when you're lining your own pocket. It's just when other people are doing well. But the issue is you have these whole... Uh, cottage industry of these consultants that will come and they'll go into a school district or they'll go to a business and they'll go to colleges and universities and they bring a lot of this into those institutions and they call it equity. Boy, uh, Marvin, I think the governor is, is talking about, you know, the sensitization classes or where people go into a setting where there has been institutional racism and they try and tell people uh, you've got to be more sensitive to people of other races, ethnicities, and he is saying that's a cottage industry. What do you say? It, it, it's, it's an argument against people being woke. What would DeSantis prefer, that white folks remain asleep? You know, I, I would welcome and I would hope that many institutions and businesses in particular would welcome people, qualified people to come in and help their constituents, their students, their employees understand our racial history, not to make anybody feel guilty, but to help these institutions become more responsible and sensitive uh, to, to their own histories and how these things have been carried forward. One example, uh, when schools were desegregated in Dade County, uh, all the black high schools, and we had four of them at the time, were turned into middle schools. No white high schools were turned into middle schools. Kids from Booker T had to be bused to Miami Beach. That's yeah. institutional racism. Ended up with these kids from over town being penalized in terms of their institutional, uh, uh, their uh, educational attainment and, and performance. So we look at what an institution like a school system, a police department, or or a business has done that 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 has impacted in a negative way minority communities. Not to make anybody feel that they have to be guilty about it, but Make corrections where you can make corrections and improve things when you can make improvements. 
the governor is running for president. And this is the kind of tone that we're going to hear yeah. from a number of Republicans going forward. It's very yeah. disappointing. Very, very disappointing. Well, well, this is part of his offensive in the culture wars, and it speaks to his political base. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I learned, that we all learned reading your op-ed in November in the Herald, is that in uh, the 1920s, three African-Americans were lynched in South Miami-Dade County. Willie Gray I. Simmons, J.B. Yes. Harris, and Mary Cousins. And yes. you wrote that you and the historian Gene Tenney, whom I also know, uh, are trying to erect a, uh, a marker to remember them and their lives. How is that going? Uh, it's going very well. As a matter of fact, just recently, uh, Miami-Dade Mayor has signed on to uh, helping us make this happen. Uh, we are in the process of, um, of looking at also putting in a marker for the McDuffie, the site where Arthur McDuffie was killed. Yeah. Uh, the, the county is moving, I think, in the right direction, and I think the city of Miami as well, towards uh, memorializing these, these, these places and these events so that people can understand or appreciate that these things happen. Uh, until this organization uh, uh, that I'm associated with called TIER uh, became involved, um, very few people in Dade County even knew that we had a lynching, much less uh, three of them in our community. So we're trying to tell these stories, and the county is, I think, moving in the right direction, thanks to the mayor. Yeah. Um, you know, we should point out that critical race theory is not taught in any public schools in the state of Florida. So passing a law to ban it from being taught is really kind of redundant. I mean, there is no need to pass such a law. And even one could say passing a law allowing parents to sue, you know, if they believe it's been taught. I mean, for example, uh, if, if a teacher wanted to talk about Black Lives Matter, could a parent then go ahead and say, well, gee, you know, you're t teaching critical race theory. That is exactly what will happen, and it will throw a murky wrench into our education system if this is followed. It's, it's uh, I guess, based on the same thinking about turning in people who are aiding someone to get an abortion. That's now the new uh, swing of things among Republicans. It's going to be a disastrous thing if that happens, and I'm hoping that it does not come to, come to be. Um, it's one of the worst things that DeSantis has said throwing this kind of a proposal before the people of Florida. And enough of them will, I think, go for it that some school districts may, in fact, allow this to happen. It would be a very, very unfortunate thing for us. Yeah. Marvin Dunn, uh, it's a pleasure to see you again, to speak with you. Thank you for all the many good things you have done at FIU and for our community over the years. Merry Could Christmas. Can I mention one other thing, if I might? Yes. Uh, I, set up, I set up my own web page, website, dunnhistory.com, to tell some of these difficult stories that our teachers may not be allowed to tell. So let me invite your audience, dunhistory.com. I'm putting my, my legacy on that site for teachers and students and for the public. So please visit. And thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you, Marvin. Take care. Yeah. All you right. Too. We'll be right back. If you want to go back and watch again today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, scan this QR code 
with your phone. It will take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate your support and uh, uh, loyalty over the years. Hope you have a healthy and wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas. And remember, stay informed, get involved.